And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest mentor is a true legend of the game of golf. Tom Watson won eight major championships, including five British Opens, two wins at the Masters, and perhaps the most dramatic U.S. Open victory in history. He also has 39 PGA Tour wins, 14 additional wins worldwide, and 14 wins on the Champions Tour, six of the majors. A six-time PGA Tour Player of the Year, Tom was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1988. Welcome, Tom. I, I'm really glad you're here. I know how busy you are with Watson Links, which we'll get to in a minute, so appreciate uh, your time very much. Well, thanks, Dan. I'm glad to be on your show. Well, one of the things that's always impressed me about you, Tom, is the way you deal with setback, adversity, and what have you. And in your sports career, it happened early as a young Little League baseball player. You go way back, don't I'm you? I'm going way back. So You've what happened there and, and, and what did you do about it? Well, I kiddingly say that baseball got me to be a golfer. Because when I was a little kid, I loved baseball. Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Yankees are my heroes. I went to a, a baseball game with my grandfather at age five and watched Ted Williams play against the Kansas City Athletics at Old Municipal Stadium. And I love baseball. We played pickup baseball around around the neighborhood. And then I was I got to play organized baseball when I was eight years old on a team called the Hen House Chicks. Hen House was a grocery store chain here and specialized in chicken, obviously. And and I played uh, as an eight-year-old, but the next year I went out for a different team. Uh, because most of my schoolmates were on this team, and I went out to basically audition, and the manager of the team, he cut me. He said, yeah, you're not good enough. So no baseball that summer, so I ended up playing quite a bit of golf that summer, and, and so I jokingly say that baseball made me a golfer. Well, as they say, the rest is history, so that opened a door for you, and I think that's a, that's a good lesson. So you had a lot of mentors, and we're going to talk about a few of them. One was your father, who really introduced you to the game. Your dad was really quite a good golfer, and he would take you out there with his friends, who also, I think, shared a love of the game. In business, we call it culture, where you really learn the culture, and you learn the culture of the sport, the camaraderie, and what have you. How important was it to your development as a young man to be surrounded by adults playing the sport? Well, not only did he teach me right from the beginning how to swing a golf club, but he taught me how to play the game. He'd take me out and play three holes with me, and I was just a little kid. And being around his friends who all were good golfers, friends with whom he played, I was introduced to the culture of the game. And more importantly, the stories about the game, the, the wonderful stories that you know, they told about playing golf back in the 40s and the 50s. And then there was Stan Thirsk, who was the pro at the Kansas City Country Club, who was my teacher for many years, but we played a lot of golf together. He and his friends, who are also club professionals, 
we got together on Mondays uh, when the clubs were closed and played. But I, man, listening to their stories was so enjoyable to me. You listen to their stories about the tour life. And then you fast forward to Byron Nelson, who I went to to help me with my golf game. But more importantly, he he told me his stories back playing golf in the 30s and 40s. So my understanding of the history of the game was enriched by all these people. And that's why I love the game so much. The, the stories of and reading about golf back in the 20s about Bobby Jones and going all the way back to old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris and in, in uh, Scotland uh, and their stories about how they played the game and competitions in which they played. Well, you got pretty good pretty quickly. You won the Kansas City men's amateur match play against the adults at age 14, but then you go to Stanford, like your father, and I think it's your senior year, you're back for Thanksgiving, you go duck hunting, I think, with your dad, you're driving home, and you tell your dad you want to become a golf professional, you try making a living out of it. How did he respond to that? Well, he responded like my father was expected to respond. He said, son, that's a good decision. Because if he didn't make that decision, you'll always, you would always wonder if you could ever make it on the tour. And at that time, I had a pretty good record, amateur record, but I, I wasn't refined in any sense of the word. But I, I could do a, a few things really well. I, I hit the ball high. I could really putt. And, and I said, I'm going to give this a shot. And at that time, I was really concentrating my non-school life and, and the other parts of my life to practice and get to be a better golfer. And so that I could join the tour. And I qualified for the tour my first attempt. And then all of a sudden, now I'm on the tour. In my car, driving from tournament to tournament, playing in golf tournaments, trying to make the cut. Now, the 36-hole cut, Dan, was really important back in those days because that exempted you into the next tournament. If you didn't make the 36-hole cut, you'd have to go try to pre-qualify on Mondays at the next tournament. And sometimes that wasn't a given. If you played a bad round, you didn't play that week. And so making the cut was my first goal out there. And then my second goal was to make enough money so that I could end up in the top 60 money winners over the period of the year. And that would exempt me from having to Monday qualify. So those are my early goals when I got in the tour. But I had a hard time kind of finishing the deal. I got close a few times to winning golf tournaments, but I didn't finish the deal for a variety of reasons. But most importantly, I, I started thinking, playing and walking too fast. I was really quick with my decision-making, my quick with my golf swing, quick with my walk. And I learned uh, through advice and kind of testing the waters about, all right, let's walk a step slower, a beat slower. Let's breathe deeper. That was the key. Take two big breaths and try to go a little bit slower with my pace, which in fact kept my rhythm going in my golf swing. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, golf legend, Tom Watson. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with eight-time major champion Tom Watson. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform on any device. 
at any time. So Tom, in your golf career, especially early, but really throughout your entire career, you know, most golfers, they move to golf meccas like Arizona or Florida, and you stayed in Kansas City. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, the most important reason, why would you want to move away from your friends and family just for warmer weather? I could always travel to someplace warm. A couple of times I did, a few times I did, to get ready for the tour as the tour started in California in January. You know, it's not the best place to play golf in Kansas City in January. But the other part of it was that I was on the tour in January, for the most part, playing three or four tournaments on the West Coast. So I missed the really cold weather. Yeah, I did return in, in parts of February, but then left again to play in Florida. So I really didn't suffer through the real cold winters here in Kansas City because I was on the tour. And there was no reason to really to leave Kansas City because I'm still on the tour working at my game. And you know, plus, the most important thing is my friends and family were here. You know, I enjoyed to do things with my friends and family here. That's the human condition. Well, it paid off for you. That's an important lesson. Well, Yogi Berra had a saying, you can observe a lot by watching. You know, I remember in my business career, as you moved through and you tried to figure out, this was like early on at at and I'm moving up the, you know, up the ladder, not only getting the right assignments, sales, marketing, engineering, or operations, you'd choose and your, your boss would help you choose where to go based upon the leaders that you could learn from. Who would be your boss, your boss's boss, the chain of command in that new organization? Because what I learned in, in leadership was that, you know, people say, well, you know, how did you learn how to lead? And it was really by watching others, by watching good leaders, how they led, how they communicated, how they got the respect of others. In reading about you, you did something similar to get your golf game better. You actually would just observe great golfers their swing, other things about them. Who are some of the golfers you learn from by just watching? Well, going back to the time when I played on Mondays when the clubs were closed with Stan Thurst and playing with the, his compatriots, we had Duke Gibson, we had Edward Van Zandt, Herman Charlo, and others. We'd get together and we'd play games, you know, money games, and I would listen to them and, and their wonderful stories. But when I turned pro, I went to each individual a couple of Mondays when we played, and I asked each one of these pros, I said, what one thing should I do when I get on the tour? Because many haven't played on the tour. And they all said the same thing. Ironically enough, they all said, when you get on the tour, you go watch the best players swing, try to play golf with them to see how they manage a golf course. That's what you do. And that's what I did. You know, when Jack Nicholas was there, I'd go, stand behind him in the practice team. When Sam Sneed was there, he was my dad's idol. He still played back in the 70s and, and could really play. He was well into his 60s then. And I would watch Sam. I would watch Gene Littler. I would watch Trevino and listen to Trevino. because He was always talking, and, and <laughs> but he could really maneuver the ball. And I was, watched how he did it. He did it with a different swing than I had, so... There wasn't a lot of common swing thoughts there, but to listen to him talk about golf and the way he hits shots was really important in my development of my uh, ability to play. I know as a young player, you kind of emulated Arnold Palmer. He's another example because you liked his risk-taking, his aggressiveness. But over time, you know, you watched Nicholas, 
who had a different approach. She was a bit more calculating and strategic. What did you learn about winning from Jack? Well, Jack said a couple of things that uh, really resonated with me. One was that I won golf tournaments because I outprepared the rest of the field. He would go into major tournaments and play play the tournament course a couple of times the week before, especially the Masters, and get a feel for the golf course and play the golf course. Strategically, that was really important. The other thing I learned from Jack was that he was the best in the risk-reward category. Arnie was not. Arnie said, nobody would remember me if I didn't try to hit it through the trees. Now, Jack, he would calculate whether he could hit through the trees, but he may play the percentage shot and not risk a big score in that hole. Arnie, he was go for broke Arnie. That's why people loved him. They loved to see his, his risk-taking. But Jack was the best at reducing the risk on, on every shot that he played. And I, I watched that uh, like a hawk. And I watched him. We played practice rounds together. I watched what clubs he hit off the tee, where he placed the ball in the greens, or tried to hit the ball to the greens. And that helped me in my club selection and my strategy in playing golf courses. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to the Mentors Radio, and we are with Tom Watson. So you were a bit of a range rat, as I understand it. You practiced. Right a lot. And I think it's important to pick something you love to do if you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. I think you said maybe Trevino is the only person that kind of practiced as hard as you did. But one of the things I think you learned from Jack or shared at least the view, no matter how many shots you're hitting on the range, that every shot has a purpose. Would you describe what you mean by that? Well, every swing that you make, it has to be the only shot you're going to hit all day. When you're practicing, you're trying to create a very good swing thought. You know, a lot of times the swing thought revolved around your takeaway and the way you took the club back inside, outside, feel that you had. And that was, that's what I practiced on most. But the problem was that I didn't think about the impact position or the follow through so much. And so I was always struggling when I got off to try to find another key that would work for me. I can tell you a story about the, the U.S. Open in 1982 where I chipped in to win on the from, on the 71st hole. I birdied the last hole to win by two over Jack. But going into that tournament, Dan, I was playing my worst golf in years, absolutely years. Hmm. And it was at Pebble Beach. Now, of course, I knew. But the course was set up really tough. Rough was really long. And I played three practice rounds there, and I was spraying it all over the place, off the tee. I was wild. And the only thing I could figure out to do is I better practice around the greens a lot. I mean, I because I'm going to miss a lot of greens. I better practice from different positions in the greens during the practice round to get a feel for the, the different flag positions. So I, that's what I did. In the first two rounds, through smoke and mirrors, literally, I was even par after two rounds. I should have been. Should have missed the cut, probably. But the one thing that I was doing right, if you might say, was I was spraying the ball so far offline that I was in the, where the gallery was walking, where they trampled down the rough. <laughs> so I could get my club head in the ball and get it up to the green somewhat. The guys who were just missing the fairways, they were in rough this deep, and they couldn't advance the ball. So... After Friday's round, I go to the practice tee, as I always did, to try to find some key to my swing. 
and I found it. And the next two days, I really struck the ball beautifully. And that that key was short-lived. I mean, it didn't didn't work the next week at Westchester. I missed the cut the next week at Westchester. But I finally found the key in 1994 to my golf And it didn't have to do with my takeaway. It had to do with my impact position, my shoulders at impact. And after that, the golf game, golf swing was relatively easy anymore. And I wasn't searching for something that was always going to work for it. It finally happened. Unfortunately, I couldn't putt very well. So <laughs> it didn't translate into a lot, of, lot more victories. But I hit the ball better than I ever had in my life. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Tom Watson, discussing the importance of mentorship. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with six-time PGA Tour Player of the Year, Tom Watson, about his mentors. So, Tom, you mentioned Jack earlier and how you learned from Jack. You guys were fierce rivals. How did you become friends? Well, we became friends probably because I beat him a couple times in major championships. We played practice rounds together at the Open Championship later on in the 80s and, and 90s. and We'd always play in the, in the practice rounds that were there in the 90s and, and until he retired in 2005 from the Open Championship. But, but uh, you know, I had other mentors in, throughout my career. Byron Nelson was a mentor of mine. In 1974, I, I played uh, in the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, the toughest course I think I've ever played in a major championship. And... I had the lead going into the last round, but shot 79. Hale, Hale Irwin won the tournament at seven over par, the highest winning score in, in, in years and since. And I was upstairs after that last round, shot 79 to lose it to Hale. And I was up in the second story of the, of the clubhouse there at Wingfoot and in walks Byron Nelson and Byron said, Tom, could I speak with you for five minutes, please? And I said, of course, Byron, yes. I really hadn't known him much, but uh, I met him a couple of times. And he took me off to the corner of the locker room, and we sat down. I said, Tom, I just want to tell you that I really was impressed about the way you played your game. Yesterday, you had it together. Today, you're a little bit off, and and it just didn't work out. And and, uh, I love the way you conduct yourself on the golf course. Oh, by the way, if you would ever want to work with me with your golf swing, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, come down to Roanoke, Texas, and we'll, we'll work on the golf swing. I said, I thanked him very much for that. And a couple of years later, I took him up on it. And in 1976, I uh, didn't have a very good year. I, I went down, visited Byron, and that started a long, long relationship with Byron. I went down there quite a bit. You know, more importantly than my golf swing, Dan was the way I saw Byron as a mentor, how he conducted himself, how people loved Byron. He was a religious man, didn't wear his religion on the sleeve, but he was uh, devout. In fact, when he died, his, his wife, Peggy, when I called her up, I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, don't be sorry. 
he's exactly where he wants to be. And I thought that was really illustrative of, of who the man was. But the stories he would tell me about the old days and the tour, the way he was a ham in front of people still, he could still swing a golf club, that uh, I just loved to be in his company. And I learned so much from him in so many different aspects of life. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we're talking with Tom Watson. So I read an article recently, a reporter, I guess Tom was in your office, and you have, I guess, paraphernalia like trophies and pictures around. And they said, you know, with the trophies, you actually had to go and look and read the inscriptions to remember what they were. But a picture, you just kind of lit up when you'd see a picture. What is it about the pictures that got you so excited? Well, Dan, the photographs remind me of the memories. It evokes the memories. A trophy, I could look at one. I said, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but the pictures are the... I'm a photographer, so I love photography. I love to compose you know, the shots because a great photographer has the feel for the image. And, you know, the images that I have, not that I've taken, but other people have taken of, of my career are important. The people in my life are important. And I say this, you know, I'm living in this beautiful home here. If it started to burn down, what I would do, I'd go around and gather up all the photographs I possibly could. I don't have them digitized yet, which I should do, yes. But I would gather up the photographs as quickly as I could get them out of the house. So, Tom, kind of following up on that, John Wooden had a saying that trophies, championships aren't all they're cracked up to be, but the real reward is the journey itself. Would you concur with that? And what is it about kind of how you navigated the journey that's most important to you? I fully ascribe to what John Wooden said about the journey. The journey is the most important thing, without a doubt. Obviously, over the course of a journey, there, there are islands, there are times when you succeed, things like that. But I always felt that when I was in my prime and I was really trying to be the best golfer I possibly could be, that if I won a tournament, the next tournament on Thursday – I teed it up even with everybody. Mm -hmm. The tournament I just won didn't have any influence on the term, the next tournament I played. So it was always a continuing journey with me. Yes, I, I racked up a number of victories. And that was, if you look at it, that was the ultimate goal. But my ultimate goal, Dan, was that I was trying to be the best golfer I possibly could, have the best swing I possibly could have. And that would take care of victories. So I was always concentrating on that. That's why I was a range rat. That's why I practiced so much. And when I finally found the secret to my golf swing in 1994, it was, it was a big sigh of relief in the sense that, you know, I could go to the, I could go to the range and warm up and know that I had the right thoughts and swing. I had the right swing in my mind. And, and I could, if I produced that, uh, I was going to be, I was going to play my best golf, which I did. And But it was the journey that was the most important thing. I read also that you said one of the important things about your journey was playing the game the way it's supposed to be played and also how you treat other people. Somebody asked you who some of your favorite golfers were today. 
And you mentioned Scheffler and Rom. I think you said, obviously, they're good golfers, but I like the way they treat people. And I think that's one of the things, you know, getting back to, I think it was Stan Thursk very early. You said one of the things you learned from Stan was you just liked the way he treated other people. Well, Stan was a golf professional, which is different than a professional golfer. And he always made that distinction. A golf professional is, is a professional who, if you have 500 members of a golf club, he had 500 bosses. <laughs> <laughs> And he had to treat his bosses with respect. And but the game teaches you that. You know, the game is is a game of etiquette. Now people don't have much etiquette anymore, sadly, uh, the way they treat people. But uh, when I had my first junior lesson from Paul Weiler, who's the club club pro, the golf professional there at Kansas City Country Club, we had a whole group of juniors, all different ages, go out uh, on, a, on a Thursday morning. And we thought we we're going to go get a golf lesson, or be, you know, a group lesson. No, Paul said, "All right, boys, put your bag over bags over here. Sit down." And he he sat us down on the patio there, and he said, "All right, here's the deal. The first chapter in the rules of golf is about etiquette. We're going to talk about etiquette today. Mm-hmm. How you stand, where you stand, how you play the game, rake the bunkers, fill in the divots, uh, don't run." Uh, it's a game that you, you're silent when you're, you know, you're playing, playing partner or competitor is hitting the ball. You don't yell in their backswing saying, miss it, miss it, or hey, bada, 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 like this. You don't do that. Golf is a game where you have respect for your fellow competitor. And, uh, that's, um, uh, you know, that, and that translates in your life in the way you treat people in life, the way the etiquette of golf is. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm distraught over the way people are uh, treat treat each other today. But that's a whole nother story. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor Tom Watson. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio. And now back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with golf legend Tom Watson about making the most out of one's life journey. So, Tom, you know, you also had kind of a rough patch. There was like a nine-year drought where you hadn't won a tournament. I think you mentioned earlier you kind of found you found your swing. You got that back. But during that time, and, and you've been open about this, you were drinking too much and you stopped drinking. Some people pointed it out. But that also gave you the opportunity to mentor others. One in particular, a golfer who's now kind of a well-known golf TV personality. Can you tell us about that encounter? Alcoholism kind of ran into the golf world. Having a drink after a round of the golf was very commonplace back in the days when I was a kid. And my dad, he was an alcoholic and quit. Uh, uh, but the yeah, you know, it, it it ran rampant on the tour as well when I first joined the tour. A lot of people drank you know, to excess, but um, you know I finally wised up. I had some help, and people uh, you know, people came to me and and said they loved me. That that and I I uh, I went to rehab, and and you know, twenty three days later, my mom died. I left rehab, came back, and uh, it's interesting they. It, it was a 30-day program, and 
the uh, I, I called up the counselor up there and I said, well, I'll, I'll be back in, uh, in two days to finish my rehab. He said, no, Tom, you don't have to come back. You got the program. And, you know, that, you know, that set me on a different journey in life. Uh, uh, and, and sobriety was number one. And I learned, uh, you know, through my sober friends uh, that, uh, you know, there's certain things you do to, to live your life. And you take it easy. You, you live one day at a time. I mean, that's, that's a cliche, but that's true. That's truly it. Or one moment at a time. And I ran ran across my good friend David Faraday. He wasn't a really good friend at that time, but David was obviously struggling. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, "David, you're not well." And he said, "How do you know?" I said, "I see my reflection in your eyes." Mm-hmm. And so we we went on our journey together. And he he got sober, and and uh, that's where we are today. So. You know, that's one of the things that you do in the program is try to help other people with their alcoholism. You set an example for them if you can. You don't do it by promotion. You do it by attraction. And, you know, that's how, that, that's how we, uh, we get people to you know, recognize that they have a problem and, and uh, we can help them. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with Tom Watson. So, Tom, you've long been involved with the First Tea program in Kansas City, which I think exposes, you know, young people to the game of golf, a game they otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to be exposed to. And now you have a new initiative called Watson Links. How is Watson Links different? The First Tee teaches the kids how to play golf, how to swing the golf club, but it doesn't uh, get them on the golf course to actually play golf. Uh, Watson Links does that. We are a mentorship program. We have mentors, older mentors, who take three kids to play nine holes on a golf course, free of charge, and get them out on a golf course to play golf. The mentors sometimes helps the kid. Have they help the kids with club selection and maybe strategy and things like that? But more importantly, it gets the kids out to have fun. Uh, you you can't have fun just play, hitting balls on a practice tee. You got to go out and play, get on the golf course, and and, and enjoy the different uh, aspects of golf that you don't find in the practice tee, like sand traps, bunkers, uh, rough, uphill lies, downhill lies, side hill lies, fast downhill putts, uphill putts, side hill putts, all fi- things that uh, are part of the game that you don't you don't find on the practice practice range in the first tee. So that's where we're that's where we are right now. It's been very successful. And you know, we're we are promoted it all around the country now. We hired just a new executive director, and her job is to is to uh, service all the interest that we have from uh, over thirty uh, cities for the Watson Links program. I think you say one of the reasons that this program is important is because with electric carts and all that these days, there's not as many young people caddying, and that's where a lot of them. Learn you like the movie Caddyshack. I mean, that's got that's how they really learned about the game of golf and right. and to and to love the game of golf. So you figure you're creating, we'll call it new lifetime golfers, and it sounds like you're successful in finding mentors. That's exactly why I started these programs, and finally found one that I really think is going to 
to work in creating lifetime golfers. I have three foundations, Dan, all devoted to golf. And the number one mission, part of the mission statement is to create lifetime golfers out of kids. I want to do that. And we, and we also like to do it out of adults. Our program can work in, in the adult atmosphere as well to get adults and new, you know, new golfers out on the golf course and help them, uh, help them learn how to play the game on the golf course and give them a passion for it. Tom, how do you define success? What is success to you? Well, success is, uh, I think it's part of what we're talking about before, is that that's the journey. The journey defines your success. Each step of the way, can you build upon uh, uh, what you're doing and, and, and be, be better at what you're trying to do? Now, that's what I did in the, uh, as far as my golf swing was, was concerned. I was always trying to build a better uh, pressure-proof golf swing. And I finally got to the, kind of the pinnacle where I, it did work, and it was going to continue to work. Uh, the success was basically all the way up to 1994, and that was well after my, the meat of my career. Uh, I finally found the success in my golf swing, Dan. Uh, I won a couple more PGA tour, tour tournaments. I won uh, several, several uh, you know, senior tour events, uh, but uh, I finally hit that uh, where I could measure that as, uh, as, as the success. It's not that I stopped trying to learn uh, you know, the golf swing. Uh, there were certain iterations of what I was doing that uh, needed you know, tweaking at, at times, but most importantly, the, the fundamental of my, fundamentals of my golf swing worked. We'll be back in a few minutes talking with World Golf Hall of Famer Tom Watson about sharing his love of golf with others. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with golfing great Tom Watson discussing success and happiness. So, Tom, I'm going to ask you another question. It's related to success, but it's not always the same thing, because I find that there have been a lot of very successful people who aren't happy. So what is happiness to you? Well, happiness is an inner joy that you you have in life. Sometimes life throws you curveballs, like my wife Hillary died of pancreatic cancer, and it was a it's a low life. But what I took from that is their memories. And I tell people when and I, and I, I relate to people when they lose a loved one. I said, let their memories fill the void they leave. And your glass is half full rather than empty. And try to make your life as positive as you can in this crazy, mixed up, horrible world we live in, unfortunately. And happiness is our people. Mm -hmm. have, have strong, happy people in your life. That's what breeds happiness. Try to enrich your life with people who are positive and are happy themselves. Laughter is, is the elixir of happiness. Make yourself laugh. Laugh about things. And yeah, you're happy. You know, Victor Borga had a saying, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. 
And it's so true. I think those are great comments about happiness and the importance of, of other people in your life to make you happy. Some things that might make you unhappy, but although I'm going to ask you about this because I think you like it. One of the things you say you like about Lynx golf, because the ball takes unexpected or I would call bad bounces, probably none more famous than the one on the 72nd hole when you're going for your sixth British Open at Turnberry, but you actually embrace that part of the game. That sounds counterintuitive. Why? Well, I, I didn't embrace it at first. I hated Lynx golf at first because the luck of the bounce played such an integral part in the outcome of where the ball was, mm -hmm. it was going to be. And I didn't like the fact that I couldn't stop the ball in the greens because in America, I, could hit, I hit the ball high and could stop the ball in about any green. When I first played Lynx golf, I didn't like it, even though I won two Open Championships when I didn't like it. But I finally really totally embraced it. And when I went up to Royal Dornock in 1981 with my good friend Sandy Tatum, we went out for a second round of golf in a driving rainstorm, wind blowing just the two of us and two caddies. And on the 16th hole, I hit it down in this big quarry down there. I struggled to make a bogey. And I got up in the green, we're soaking wet. The umbrellas were broken because of the wind. I said, looked at Tatum. I said, Tatum, I've never had this much fun playing golf. And I meant it. It was a revelation. It really was. And after that, I, and I really embraced the game the way it's played. And really go back to my childhood. When you play as a kid, you don't hit the ball very far. You, you're trying to roll the ball on the greens. You can't hit it high enough. You roll the ball on the greens. And that's essentially what you do in Lynx golf. You learn how to roll the ball, land the ball, and run the ball on the greens when conditions dictate. And I finally embraced that part of the game. And here I am today, loving the game as it's played on Lynx golf. By the way, can you love the game when you're not playing well? And what advice would you have to duffers like me and others who aren't having a good day? Is it possible to enjoy yourself out there when you're not? Not really. You know, when you're not playing well, it's not very, it's not enjoyable. You know, you're, you're failing. As my old wonderful golf pro Stan Thurst said, when I struggled for all those years in between 84 and 94 practice sessions and I get angry and cuss and, and Stan would say, you hate the game, don't you? See how I hate this game. And he just calmly said, well, keep at it. The worm will turn. And it did. It turned in 1994 when I found the secret to my golf swing, and he was right. You know, I think that says a lot for practicing a lot, because I think you enjoy the game a lot more when you put the work in and you have, have fewer bad days. I think earlier you talked about kind of how you deal with pressure, because pressure really affects performance in a negative way, and you learned how to kind of breathe and slow down and and what have you. And what I tell executives or people in business that, you know, because they feel pressure or nervous, particularly when they have to either present to a large group or meet with your boss's boss or even their boss. And it's all about preparation. It's not only that you'll perform sure. better when you prepare, but knowing you've prepared reduces your stress level. And that's, I think, the most important thing is, it, is you go in a lot more confident and relaxed because being relaxed is an important part. What I've learned as a duffer is just not putting pressure on yourself and just relaxing helps me play the game better, although I, I stink even on my best days compared to you. Well, here's, here's a quick tip, all right? 
my friend Bob Murphy gave this tip. We did lots of exhibitions together and walking walking clinics. And he said, I use my positive negative when I hit a shot. Yep, there's water to the left of the green there. That's the negative thought. My positive thought is the shot I'm trying to hit. And my last thought had better be the positive thought I had to swing the golf club, not the negative thought about that water. So always think positive on your last moment. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tom. You've shared so many lessons that are applicable to those who are listening, who are in business careers and all sorts of careers. And you have definitely lived your journey the right way. And you've been a great mentor. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, and on iHeartRadio worldwide. Join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.